My father, he's fundamentally changed a party. It's no longer the Republican Party, it's the Trump Party. We are going to take power after this next election. And when we do, it's going to be the days of Jim Jordan. President Trump, the leader of the Republican Party. And Marjorie Taylor Greene. Q is a patriot. And Dr. Gosar. The DOJ is harassing peaceful patriots. And myself. An armed rebellion against the government. The notion that Republicans are going to take control of the House and we're going to hold hands in the warm spring rain with the Democrats and legislate is ludicrous. Yes, it is. So what you going to do about it? No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Mm-hmm. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am. Stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's. WADR and Minneapolis St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every day on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk, amongst all your favorite uh, other uh, podcast sites as well. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. I want to say now for the anti-authoritarian hour. Welcome to it. The one not literally funded by the Kremlin. The one who doesn't make excuses to support authoritarianism, that does not think Iran was right to uh, take our embassy hostage back in 1979. I know it's crazy. Crazy thought. People who don't listen to us here on KPFK must wonder, what the hell is Brad talking about? (laughs) Well, we do have a diversity of voices here on KPFK. That's a nice way to put it. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. Uh, as usual, there's a whole lot going on uh, Hi, across David. the nation and the world at the start of a new week, some of which I may be able to get to uh, a bit later, including Britain's former conservative party finance minister becoming their next prime minister and, and their first person of color in that role. As the UK's right wing cycles through yet another prime minister, I think it's their third and seven weeks. It's something like their fifth or sixth in the last six or seven years. Just a thought. Uh, there's another party out there called the Labor Party. I understand they're very popular these days. Maybe it's time for a national election. Also of no in in the UK, we got one going on here already. Also of note on Monday, right wing activist Justice Clarence Thomas whose right-wing activist wife, Ginny, was an active participant in Donald Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, well, he has put a temporary hold 
on an order last week from a three-judge panel, which included two Trump judges on the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, that uh, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham must talk to the Fulton County Georgia prosecutor Fonnie Willis's special grand jury in Atlanta, the one that's investigating the Trump-led criminal conspiracy to try and force Georgia election officials to steal the 2020 election in the state for Donald Trump. But Clarence Thomas says, no rush. Lindsey Graham doesn't have to go in. Just ignore those lower court judges for for now. Maybe much more on that as time allows. A little bit later, we shall see. But with arguably the most critical midterm elections uh, in, well, modern history anyway, uh, right now in many states underway, Uh, and ending on Election Day, November 8, in just two weeks. I suspect we're going to be focusing a whole lot on that between now and uh, November 8, and certainly beyond on the broadcast. Today is no exception, particularly now that most registered California voters should have by now received their ballots in the mail, and many of them are already voting. I want to focus then on a few statewide California ballot initiatives that are once again masquerading as populist proposals, when in fact, yet again, the funding for the ballot measures come from huge corporations hoping to pull the wool over voters and workers' eyes. Abusive ballot initiative process uh, has gotten so bad in in recent decades out here in the Golden State that my guest joining me in a moment now charges that California's experiment in direct democracy through ballot referenda is, in fact, a failed experiment. I will ask him about that. But to help uh, tell this part of the story today, we need to sort of wind the clock back to the last general election in 2020 when Proposition 22 was passed statewide in California with 59 percent of the vote. That's kind of a landslide. The measure uh, was promised to exempt app-based transportation and delivery companies like Lyft and Uber from needing to uh, classify their drivers as employees, as would otherwise be required by a a new state law. Instead, under Prop 22, those drivers would be independent contractors, exempted from providing the full suite of mandated employment benefits like, you know, time and a half for overtime, paid sick leave, employer-provided health care, bargaining rights, unemployment insurance, all that stuff that you get as an employee – But uh, for all of those things that they would not get, the companies who placed Prop 22 on the statewide ballot in California vowed that, well, the people who worked for them would get a whole bunch of other benefits that would ensure that they would have it even better than other so-called independent contractors in the state. As the American Prospects executive editor David Dayan reported last month, remember that time when Uber and Lyft bought a new classification for their workers in California. To be precise, he writes, the companies spent $224 million, a record for a ballot initiative at the time to promote Prop 22, which carved out a new classification for rideshare and delivery workers in the Golden State who would not be employees but would get, according to Uber and Lyft, more wage, and benefit guarantees than a simple independent contractor. Now, mind you, for those who aren't in California, we often talk about things that happen in California because, 
while what happens in California tends to spread to the rest of the country. Uber and Lyft, David Dan wrote, made some specific promises in that campaign back in 2020. They said the drivers would earn 120 percent of the local minimum wage and 30 cents per mile driven. The local minimum wage out here in California is $15. They promised a heavy stipend for health insurance if drivers worked a certain number of hours, and they vowed to provide occupational accident insurance as a form of workers' comp. That plus $224 million, writes Dayan, convinced voters who approved Prop 22, like I said, with nearly 59 percent of the vote. But he, as he also noted, the subsequent implementation of Prop 22 pretty much immediately led drivers to have to check the fine print. We will discuss what those drivers found after the uh, proposition was passed. We'll discuss that with David when he joins us in a moment. But the same companies now, just two, two years later, are at it again, having bought their way into yet another statewide ballot to, uh, as Dan argues, once again, snag more benefits for itself with, quote, a relatively minimal investment that shapes California law to their benefit. This time, Prop 30 on this year's ballot, the one that you, if you're listening in California, have probably received in the mail by now but may not have yet uh, filled out or sent back. Prop 30, notes Dan, looks quite appealing on the surface. It would add a 1.75% and 1. surtax on incomes above $2 million. Aha! Tax the rich. That sounds good. While putting the revenue toward subsidies for purchasing zero-emission vehicles and infrastructure for those vehicles, like charging stations, while well, saving the planet with electrical vehicles. Also good. Thank you, Lyft. Right? And the measure would even spend uh, some of that money, uh, uh, some of that money that increased tax on the wealthy for wildfire suppression. Well, that is certainly a problem in this state for which we could always use more funding as our climate crisis worsens each year. The tax would phase out after the state meets a threshold of greenhouse gas emission reductions or within 20 years. Here's an ad promoting Prop 30. If you live in California, you may have seen it. It's narrated by someone named Kevin M., who is described as a fire captain, presumably from somewhere here in California. I've fought wildfires for 20 years. Here's the reality we face every day. This is a crisis. We need more firefighters, more equipment, better forest management to prevent wildfires and reduce toxic smoke. And we need to reduce the tailpipe emissions that are driving changes to our climate. That's why Cal Fire Firefighters, the American Lung Association, and the California Democratic Party support Prop 30. Prevent fires, cut emissions, and cleaner air. Yes on 30. Hmm. Well, that certainly sounds good. State firefighters, the Lung Association, and the Democratic Party all support the Prop 30 effort to prevent wildfires, to cut emissions and get cleaner air. So why then has the progressive Democratic governor of California, Gavin Newsom, taken the very unusual step of appearing in an ad to oppose Prop 30 to support the no on Prop 30 position? Fellow Californians, I need to warn you about Proposition 30. 
one company's cynical scheme to grab a huge taxpayer-funded subsidy. Don't be fooled. Prop 30 is being advertised as a climate initiative, but in reality, it was devised by a single corporation to funnel state income taxes to benefit their company. Put simply, Prop 30 is a Trojan horse that puts corporate welfare above the fiscal welfare of our entire state. Vote no on Prop 30. Well, that's confusing, isn't it? Joining us now to try and unconfuse us, to try to make sense of what is or isn't going on here, and to discuss a couple of other items, which I suspect he'll have some insight on, uh, which broke since we wanted to talk to him about Prop 30 and the California Ballot Initiative System, is our friend David Dayan, investigative financial journalist, executive editor at The American Prospect, a 2021 Sidney Hillman Prize winner, for magazine journalism and the author of several books, including his latest, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power, in which, by way of full disclosure, I must note that I am cited and or quoted once or twice, but it's a very good book anyway. David Dayan, thank you, sir, for joining us again on the broadcast, my friend. Thanks for having me, Brad. Uh, David, since the last time, well, since the time we determined we wanted to have you on, there were, as I noted, a couple of other items that I suspect you'll have uh, some insight on, specifically on this move late last week to defund, essentially, a a right-wing court to defund the Critical Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, uh, the one federal agency specifically created to protect customer uh, con- consumers uh, instead of uh, corporations. And if time allows, I want to talk about this uh, recent annou- recently announced mega merger between these uh, two grocery store giants, as you warned in your book called Monopolized. But let's start with what you characterize as Lyft and Uber's abuse, really, of the state ballot initiative system. I mentioned all the promises that they made when they... Uh, bought their way onto the ballot in 2020 with that Prop 22. That passed successfully. It made promises that life would be much better for Lyft and Uber and and other app-based gig workers. Now we've got two years of data on this, David, uh, since its passage. How has it worked out uh, for the workers that they promised would enjoy all sorts of new benefits like increased pay and increased health insurance, et cetera, under that new state law? Well, unless you think making $6.20 per hour in 2022 is a good deal, uh, you would probably say that the rideshare drivers got rooked. (laughs) And uh, it's obviously to be expected when you uh, allow a corporation to set the terms of employment and to opt out of the, in this case, the state system that governs employment arrangements, they're probably going to take advantage of it for their own devices. And and that's exactly what happened here. Uh, The big reason why the uh, average uh, rate is so much lower than the state minimum wage Mm -hmm. is that the guaranteed minimums that were put into the, the, the ballot measure are only operative for what are called engaged hours. In other words, time when a driver is actually taking a rider to a location. Uh None of the time when a rider is waiting around or heading to a location uh, or after dropping off goes, uh, you know, away to go somewhere else Mm -hmm. or even drives home. None of that is counted in that guaranteed minimum. And so it, it's, it's 
$15 an hour or 20% above $15 an hour as they promised you're actually taking a ride, uh -huh. but that's not the whole job. Uh, unless you're all always picking someone up where you drop someone <laughs> off, that's not the whole job. And so that's what creates these averages, which are far, far below the $15 an hour threshold. Now, was that anything that would we have been able to understand that? And I know, uh, you know, most people do not read the fine details of these propositions, which are, are often meant to be very confusing. Is that something that we would have understood had we read all of those fine details? Was that was that clear or was that something that they changed later? If you know what engaged hours mean, mm. you know, I mean, engaged hours, when you are engaged at work mm -hmm. in the work that you do, do you count not just the time that you're on the air, but also the time you spend mm -hmm. preparing to mm -hmm. be on the air, right? The time you spend, uh, you know, mm -hmm. uh, booking guests like myself, mm -hmm. uh, all of that is time spent at work. But according to Lyft and Uber, that's not time spent at work at all. It's only the, this this thin amount of time when you're actually engaged. And so unless you understand what Lyft and Uber and, and DoorDash and the other rideshare companies that were involved in this ballot measure, unless you understand what they mean by engage, mm -hmm. there, there wasn't that much of a way. And, and this is all presuming that you go to the booklet and read every word. Right. Of, of a ballot measure. Yeah. And as you can tell from those two uh, ads for Prop 30 that I played one for and one against, they're 30 second ads. They don't have time to really even explain what they actually do. They just explain to you uh, what they want you to know about any particular proposition. So with that in mind, uh, you know, there's reason to be suspicious of Lyft, uh, who has yet another new California ballot initiative. That's Prop 30 to raise taxes on millionaires. That sounds good, Dave, to invest in electric vehicles, charging stations, to fund more firefighters in the state. This all sounds very good to me. Why would this be supported by the state firefighters and the Lung Association and the Democratic Party? Party, but be opposed by our Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom. Who's got this one right? What the hell is going on? <laughs> well, I will explain to you why Newsom's against it or why I think Newsom's against it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I would personally say there's nothing that objectionable in, in this ballot measure. Mm -hmm. As you say, it funds millionaires for things that we need, public infrastructure, uh, wildfire suppression, things like that. Mm -hmm. the, the reason that Lyft is supporting it is that there's a separate fed, uh, state law that requires, uh, I believe it's 90% of all rideshare miles traveled by 2030 to be in zero emission vehicles. Mm -hmm. So that means that every Lyft, every Uber practically has to be uh, an electric vehicle or some other zero emission vehicle. Mm -hmm. Now, as you know, Uber and Lyft don't buy the vehicles right. for the drivers. The drivers have their own vehicles. Uh, however, if if this mandate comes into place, and it will by you know within eight years, uh, Uber and Lyft are going to have to figure something out. And Uber has even said, we will subsidize our drivers so they can buy an electric vehicle mm -hmm. so they can keep driving for us. Mm -hmm. So that's the choice Uber made. The choice Lyft made was to try to get 
taxpayers to pay for it, <laughs> try to get millionaires to pay for it, mm -hmm. and uh, put that into a fund that so the state helps uh, people uh, purchase electric vehicles in the hopes that some of those people will end up driving for Lyft. Now, this is a bit of a bank shot for, I, I don't really understand what, what Gavin Newsom is saying by saying it threatens our fiscal future, unless you think that, that you know, the people who make enormous sums of money in California are taxed too much already for some reason, mm -hmm. uh, or you think that they're going to, uh, you know, hit a limit. Uh, I don't agree with that. Um, but uh, I do think that this sets kind of a worrying precedent. Here's a company that is uh, required to do something by state law through a mandate. And they said, okay, well, let's go to the voters instead mm -hmm. and get somebody else to pay for it. Um, you can see that precedent uh, applying to a lot of other situations, which would not be as favorable uh, as taxing millionaires for electric vehicles, right? Uh, you, you can see how that, that might be troubling, mm -hmm. uh, that a company faced with a mandate can just say, well, I'll pay less than what it would cost me for the mandate to just uh, you know, run a ballot measure campaign and, and get the voters to agree with me, mm -hmm. and, and I get off scot-free. And yet, uh, there are. I'm not. I'm still not clear why that would lead uh, Newsom to oppose it. I think the teachers' union. Am I right about that? The teachers' union may also oppose. Teachers' union is also against it. I mean, yeah. I, I can't totally speak to their rationale unless they think that a lot of other corporations are going to do this. Uh -huh. uh, certainly, there's a lot of money already earmarked. For subsidizing yeah. electric vehicles in yeah. California, something like $10 billion right. over the next five years. That calls into question whether we need more money uh, in order to do that. Think of how many vehicles $10 billion mm -hmm. could buy or help buy. Uh, so uh, Newsom, uh, you know, it's, it's very curious. As you say, it's kind of unprecedented for a governor yeah. to... Uh, decide to be the spokesperson for a ballot measure. Right. I, I don't remember it ever happening before, uh, particularly a governor who's who's run, supposed to be running his own election. At the is, same time. Spending his time uh, as the spokesperson for another ballot measure. You know, I, I, you know, I think Schwarzenegger might have done it uh, for some measures that he had personally put on that's the right. ballot through the through the legislature, yeah. if I recall. This is a di that's correct. Yeah. But this is a different scenario, right. I would say. Yeah. Uh, you know, th this he doesn't have any financial kind of ties mm -hmm. to uh, or unless you think that the Teachers Association represents that financial tie. Um, uh, he, well. he doesn't, uh, uh, you know, he doesn't have that direct connection the way Schwarzenegger said, you know, vote for this and, and pass my, you know, right. the budget that I want to pass. Right. By the way, he was unsuccessful. Correct. That. That's that right. Not passed. Um, and, uh, we'll see what happens here with prop 30. Um, but, uh, it is, it is interesting. Interestingly enough, uh, uh you know, the Uber Lyft ballot measure was the most expensive ballot measure in U.S. history at the time. Uh -huh. But that's already been eclipsed this oh, year. Really? By Prop 27. Oh, man. Uh, well, Props 26 and 27 in conjunction are spending twice as much as what Uber and Lyft did. $450 billion have gone into Props 26 and 27.
Million, million, not million, billion, million, right? Million, okay, million. it hasn't gotten that bad yet. No, it's not that but, bad. <laughs> it's half a billion, though. I, I, it's almost I, half a billion. I know dollars. it's unbelievable, and actually, that is what really grabbed my attention in your piece at the Prospect on this. Um, you know, citing a, a National Equity Atlas study finding, quote, the real co- the real costs of Prop Twenty Two are unclear. Uber and Lyft now legally pay their drivers poverty wages, um, but. You use that as the basis for the assertion that uh, that the initiative system in California, the ballot initiative system, is a, quote, failed experiment with direct democracy. That's a serious assertion. Uh, is the entire system a failure or is it is something that could be fixed to prevent these scammy propositions uh, purchased by major corporations who have enough money to buy their way into California law? I think it's frankly borne out by results. I mean, certainly there are ideas for reform. You could get the legislature involved and and uh, you could do things like a three strikes law where if, if a ballot measure is on the ballot twice and fails that you can't put it on again for a ah, little while. Yeah, We have a ballot measure this year, Prop 29. That's This is the third time it's been on substantially in the same form. Uh, uh, the I I think that if you look at the results here, that what matters when you put a measure on the California ballot is how much money is behind it. Mm. Right. And uh, you really have this this instance of corporations knowing that they are able to buy democracy. The big the best example I give for this is something that actually never made the ballot. Um, so, uh, California, uh, various cities were flirting with a tax on soda. We saw this mm-hmm. in Philadelphia and in New York city with, uh, Michael Bloomberg, mm-hmm. uh, a tax on sugary drinks, uh, that would go towards public health measures, uh, to, you know, pr- counteract, frankly, uh, what, what happens to people when they drink a lot of sugary drinks. Mm-hmm. Um, so the soda industry got wind of this. And they floated the idea that they were going to put a ballot measure together to ban cities in California from uh, uh, passing these kinds of soda taxes. Mm -hmm. And the legislature preempted that by passing their own ban on the cities. So here is an instance where just the threat from a large corporation to spend a lot of money to get what they want triggers the legislature to do the job for them. So this is a real serious problem. It is. And uh, I I think we do need to to look at rethinking this entire system. I think we definitely need reform. I think it's an important, uh, you know, way in theory to get important things on it for the public to get important things onto the ballot that might have no way in. But uh, when it's been taking o- taken over the way it has been by uh, corporations, it is hard to make the hard to make that argument anymore. To be frank, let me take a quick break here, David. Can you, you stick around? I want to ask you about these other points. Uh, can you stick around for a quick break? No problem. Thank you, sir. We got to do uh, a quick fun drive break here. We will be back with David Dan, executive editor of the American Prospect. I want to find out about this uh, kind of. Stunning ruling on uh, Thursday, I think, last week by a right wing court saying that the entire Consumer Financial Protection Bureau essentially 
is unconstitutional. I will explain after a quick break. I'm Brad Friedman, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the Bradcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com slash donate, and thanks. Indeed. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. i got a few more minutes here with our friend David Dan, executive editor at The American Prospect, also author of his latest book, Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Um, since we were speaking uh, before the break about big corporations buying their way into state law, uh, never mind California state law, this time it's federal law. And it was a lawsuit by the payday lending lobby that resulted late last week in a three-judge panel, I believe. And I, I think they were all Trump appointees on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals determining that the newly formed Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, created by the Obama administration with the help of Elizabeth Warren back then before she was even a senator – uh, after the 2008 financial crisis that launched the Great Recession, which uh, David Dayan wrote a book about, an award-winning book uh, called Chain of Title About, uh, the court found that the CFPB is unconstitutionally funded and worse, David Dayan, as you report, if the court's uh, ruling stands up to appeals, quote, it could potentially toss aside every agency and federal program that is not funded through discretionary congressional appropriations, threatening senior health care, retirement security, food and drug safety and all kinds of of other actions, the unintended consequences of the ruling would drive the U.S. government into near near total paralysis. Well, that sounds bad, David. Um, <laughs> the uh, the corporate media did not make it seem all that bad when they reported last week. Please explain, sir. Sure. So we have this ruling uh, defunding the police, the Consumer Protection Police. Uh, mm -hmm. by, as you correctly said, three judges, Trump-appointed judges, mm -hmm. on the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals uh, on behalf of the payday lending industry. What they said was that the CFPB's funding structure, which they are not funded out of uh, everyday appropriations, they are funded through uh, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve, which previously had Consumer Protection Authority, 
gives the CFPB the money it needs to function. Mm -hmm. And they said that was unconstitutional because uh, Congress doesn't get to touch those particular uh, dollars. Uh, this has three separate implications. So number one, it, uh, it, the three-judge panel only talked about the payday lending law that the industry wanted thrown out mm -hmm. in terms of what uh, was you know, now invalid because of this, this funding structure being unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. However, everything that the CFPB has done since its inception in 2011 would be called into question if uh, the funding structure is unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. All of it was done with allegedly unconstitutional funds. Mm -hmm. And that includes every single consumer protection law in the United States, all of which were transferred to the CFPB and then reissued. That includes several things that banks and financial institutions like very much, including safe harbors from be, having being able to be sued under various laws like the debt collection law or the Truth in Lending Act. Uh, this could open up the banking industry to a mound of lawsuits because all of the things that CFPB put in place to add coherence to the financial system, the consumer protection system, mm -hmm. would be found unconstitutional. So that's thing one. That's the first uh, implication here. The second implication is that many, many agencies are funded not through the appropriations process, but through essentially assessments on the industries that they regulate. Mm -hmm. This is particularly true in the banking system. The Federal Reserve uh, is funded through bank assessments. The FDIC, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, uh, all of these agencies and many, many more, the Federal Housing Finance Agency is another one, are funded through bank assessments. And essentially, CFPB is too, because they're getting their money from the Federal Reserve, mm -hmm. which itself is funded by, by bank assessments. Mm -hmm. uh, the logic of the Fifth Circuit's ruling is that all of those other agencies are also unconstitutional, right? <laughs> because the Federal Reserve, the FDIC, the Food and Drug Administration, which is funded by industry assessments, anything that doesn't go through appropriations is unconstitutional. Right. So so that would be the second implication. The third implication is there are also a number of mandatory spending items in America that are not funded through the appropriations process, mm -hmm. but through continuing payments uh, and, and, and things of that nature. I'm thinking about Social Security. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about Medicare. I'm thinking about a host of other things that are mandatory spending, Medicaid, food stamps, uh, that aren't dealt with through continuing appropriations. The logic of the Fifth Circuit ruling is that all of those things are also unconstitutional because they do not go through the regular appropriations process. This is completely silly, but it is the logic of the Fifth Circuit's ruling. And it would mean your Social Security, your Medicare, your Medicaid, your, your supplemental nutrition program, uh, uh, your uh, temporary uh, assistance for needy families, also known as welfare, all of those things would also be unconstitutional 
under the logic of the Fifth Circuit ruling. Well, and you got to put logic, I guess, in quotes. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so the notion that, well, uh, it, it's unconstitutional because Congress can't, uh, you know, each year, I guess, or every number of years change the funding structure. Well, Congress funded the CFPB when it passed the law that right. created the CFPB. It, it they set they, up the structure. They it, did it on purpose. That is correct. <laughs> right. Um, the, 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 the ruling, I mean, you, to, just to explain how silly this ruling is, it tried to car, it tried to say in a footnote that Social Security and other mandatory spending is different, right? Uh, uh, because okay. it Because the Social Security Administration, for example, depends on annual appropriations. Uh, But but yeah, but Congress directed the Fed to fund the CFPB. There's even a limit on how much it can fund the CFPB. Uh And uh, both uh, Social Security and the CFPB have what is called a perpetual funding feature. And and that is specifically what the Fifth Circuit says is unconstitutional. And if you have a perpetual funding feature. Uh, it's a ridiculous set of rulings. There's another whole thing about how because CFPB gets its money from the Fed, which also doesn't get the money from uh, the the appropriations of the government, that it is so-called double insulated from uh, from appropriations and 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 Congress's wishes, which is the most ridiculous argument I've ever heard. Mm. But it that's how they try to distinguish between that. And the FDIC and some of these other agencies that are funded through industry assessments. Uh, none of this makes any sense. The plain logic of their ruling is that half the federal government practically is unconstitutional. And the, the originalist way in which they tried to get to this predetermined outcome uh, isn't equipped to deal with these kinds of consequences. They don't want to. But it's 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 exactly where their rulings lead. And, you know, and you you referred to it a couple of times as silly. And I guess it would be, except for what we have learned in recent years. This stuff is actually not silly at all. I mean, I I presume the CFPB or someone who has standing here will actually, you know, appeal this ruling. It'll either go on bank to the to the Fifth Circuit, which is. Uh, very, very right wing already, or it could go to the Supreme Court, uh, which is also now the same very, very right wing. Right. Um, I, I, I would like to think it's silly and it will be tossed out. I am much more concerned, David Dayen, that this is the destruction of the administrative state that Steve Bannon and, and really now the entire Republican Party has been vowing for quite a while. Um, you know, it might be nice if American voters actually listened to what these folks are threatening and now doing with three Trump appointed judges on the Fifth Circuit. Well, you're absolutely right. It is serious. And and it is the uh, attempted destruction of the administrative state and the people that should be paying the most attention to this, uh, in addition to consumers who will have a, a lot of their rights taken away if CFPB is found unconstitutional, but also uh, banking interests are going to be very much harmed uh, if this goes into effect, because mm. all of the things that protect them, mm. uh, things that that that, uh, you know, protect debt collectors mm-hmm. from uh, various lawsuits, uh, storms of lawsuits by individuals, 
safe harbors uh, that, uh, you know, allows um, there's this thing when after the financial crisis, uh, you have to have an ability to pay rule. This is just one example. Mm -hmm. You have to have an ability to repay standard for mortgages. So Mm -hmm. you have to assess every mortgage so that, you know, very reasonably the borrower can repay it. Uh, there was a safe harbor put in for so-called qualified mortgages mm-hmm. that had certain characteristics. Uh, if they were, you know, low money down or uh, a lot of money down, uh, you know, and uh, conformed to certain standards, then they wouldn't have to fall under this ability to repay standard. Mm-hmm. Well, that would go away because the CFPB made the qualified mortgage rule. So every mortgage borrower could challenge their mortgage, Mm. their qualified mortgage Mm. and seek restitution. There are a lot of lenders and banks and corporations that are going to be very, very unhappy if this rule uh, stands, if this ruling by the Fifth Circuit Circuit stands. And they should think long and hard about the consequences of the destruction of the administrative state because it's going to destroy them, too. Uh, well, that is good news, because if it affects the banks that way, then, you know, maybe this has a chance of being struck down. I'm sorry to say, uh, you know, God forbid, it, you know, the consumers uh, have a problem. And this is, you know, the CFPB is really one of the only uh, maybe the only federal agencies actually uh, created, set up to look after consumer interests, not corporate interests. I. Yeah, go ahead. Certainly. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. It's the only one that has the mission, the primary mission of protecting consumers, particularly in financial transactions. And so, uh, you know, I've been talking a little bit about why bankers would be have a problem with this. Mm-hmm. But obviously, consumers yeah. would be left without a cop on the beat. Uh, this is what uh, this is. This is the future that Republicans say Democrats want, the defunded police. Yep. Well, this is defunding the police Republican style. They, they defund the uh, police that are looking after your financial transactions and make sure they're, you're not defrauded. And, and make no mistake, if the funding mechanism for the uh, CFPB, I know it all sounds very uh, nerdy and geeky, but if the funding mechanism is unconstitutional and goes away, so does the CFPB unless somehow Congress funds it differently and you'd have to get the Republicans in the House and Senate to agree to do that. That's correct. And so and that's highly unlikely. Yeah, they've been gunning for this agency since its inception. Uh, There have already been Supreme Court rulings finding certain manners of the, the CFPB to be constitutionally suspect in very dubious ways. Uh, but this is the biggest threat to date. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's a, a, a long held Republican wish yep. and, uh, they should be careful for they, what they wish for because they just might get it. And, uh, the banking, uh, interests that will be very prim- primarily affected along with 300 million consumers are going to be really, really irate about that. 
Lastly, uh, David, uh, and I'm running really late, so I can only give you a minute or so to answer, but you mm-hmm. you literally wrote the book on this, Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Uh, I want to ask you about this huge merger, uh, which has big implications, both here in California in particular, but really across uh, much of the nation, the nation's largest grocery store chain, Kroger's, which also already owns Ralph's and many other stores. They're planning to buy and merge with the nation's, I think it's the second largest uh, chain, yeah. Albertsons. They own Safeway and Vons and many others. The companies, of course, have told us that this will be nothing but fantastic for consumers mm-hmm. uh, and workers alike because the mega company will save so much money when they join together that they will be able to devote $1 billion in cost savings towards lowering food prices and increasing compensation for workers. That was across at the top of all of the stories I read about this last week. So, David, Dan, this is uh, sounds like win-win-win for everyone. Am I wrong? I mean, these are the same companies, Kroger and Albertsons, yeah. that have been crowing in investor calls for the last year about how they've been able to raise prices on consumers because of inflation and that inflation is good for them because it allows them to increase prices with relative impunity because they have pricing power. Uh They already were pretty powerful, uh, particularly in in select markets like Southern California. Uh, They were able to, uh, you know, raise their prices. And what is the consumer going to do? They have nowhere else to go. Right. Well, that would even be more so if Kroger's and Albertsons merged. Uh, think about this. If you're living in Southern California, uh, let me let me name some some uh, supermarket chains. Ralph's, mm-hmm. Food for Less, Albertsons, Safeway, uh, Vons, yep. Pavilions. All of those would be the same company under this new merger. That's wow. almost every yep. uh, supermarket chain in Los Angeles yep. that I can think of yep. outside of Whole Foods. Uh, and Trader Joe's, of course. So uh, this would this would be it, uh, pretty much. And um, uh, I, I, I that is true in other parts of the country as well. Uh, this would right now we have uh, five chains. Um, uh, it would be Kroger, Albertsons, uh, Walmart, uh, which is a, a major food mm-hmm. uh, grocery supplier in in rural areas and, and a lot of metropolitan areas, uh, Amazon because of Whole Foods, and uh, a Dutch company named Ahol Delhaize, which owns uh, Stop and Shop and Food Lion and Giant and a lot of other brands. Mm-hmm. Those five uh, control about 60% of all grocery sales. And now uh, th- with this merger, this yep. proposed merger, you would go from five to four, uh, controlling over 60% of all American groceries. Not sales. good. Uh, that, I got... that is quite concentrated, the likes of which we really haven't seen since the old days of the A&P uh-huh. in like the turn of the century. Uh, uh, so th- this is a, a very, very disturbing merger. And I'm, I'm pretty sure the Federal Trade Commission is going to take a healthy look at. Good. That was my question. Can it, will it be stopped by the Biden administration? Uh, David Dayan says they will take a healthy look at it, at least. Let's hope they do the right thing. 
Fingers crossed. Got to get out. David Dan, uh, always great speaking with you, my friend. You can find uh, David's important work at prospect.org. Also, you can follow them on Twitter at The Prospect, and you can find uh, follow David himself over there as well at D. Dan. He is the executive editor of The American Prospect, author of Monopolized Life in the Age of Corporate Power. David Dan, my friend, always good speaking with you. I look forward to doing it soon, sort of. Okay, same here. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you, brother. All right, quick break. And uh, I've got uh, one thought that I hope I'll have time for uh, on one other prop uh, on the ballot in California this year that I think actually will affect everyone in the country. That's Prop 31. Very few people are talking about it, even know what it is. I will talk about it after this quick break. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Here at the Bradcast and bradblog.com, we fight for election integrity all year around, like no other media outlet in the nation. But of course, we need your help to do it. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to make an automated monthly pledge of any amount you like, or even just a one-time-only contribution to help us remain on your public airwaves and completely independent. The fight for voting rights, civil rights, and to save our planet continues. Please help us continue that fight independently over your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate right now. Go ahead. Do it right now. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. You're listening to the American Democracy Minute, keeping your government buy-in for the people. This week, we're looking at the reasons why people don't vote. Research shows that when citizens don't follow the daily news or when their family and friends don't vote, citizens are less likely to vote. A 2020 Ipsos NPR survey shows a suspicion of news media among non-voters, 80% of whom agree with the statement, the mainstream media are more interested in making money than telling the truth. Non-voters watch less television, see less news on mobile devices and computers, and are less likely to follow campaigns. Only a third watched part of a political convention, and two-thirds didn't watch a debate. Another factor, family and friends. Only 5% of non-voters say they do discuss politics with family members. 41% never discuss politics with their family. 53% say they never discuss politics with friends. But there is more and more evidence that influence of family members and friends can encourage non-voters to register and vote, particularly among younger voters. A 2016 New York Times article interviewed Henry Brady, dean of the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley. He said, voting behavior is very much a habit. If you've had the behavior modeled in your home by your parents consistently voting, by political discussion, sometimes by participation, you start a habit formation, and then when you become a little older, you'll feel it's your duty and responsibility to register and vote. Links to articles and the surveys can be found at AmericanDemocracyMinute.org. For the American Democracy Minute, I'm Brian Beal. Bradcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. My thanks again to our friend David Dayan uh, for helping us to try to make sense of all of this madness, whether it's on the California uh, ballot or whether it's in our unbelievably corrupted federal court system where the odds are so stacked against 
consumers, that the one consumer agency, one agent, federal agency specifically targeted to help consumers is being shut down if three uh, judges appointed by Donald Trump have anything to say about it. Uh, there's one other uh, proposition. Well, there's a number of them, but there's one other that I want to talk about uh, back here in California that I need to call out here today, if only because it's one that is not getting a lot of airtime, unlike uh, these other ones that are all over the air, uh, sponsored by Lyft and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's Prop 31 in California. And to me, this is a life and death proposition. And uh, and, and frankly, it's, it's Prop 31 in California, but a similar proposition may be coming to a ballot near you very soon, even if you don't live in California. Proposition 31 is called the Flavored Tobacco Products Ban Referendum. It challenges a 2020 law that uh, prohibited uh, uh, pr- prohibiting the retail sale of certain flavored tobacco products, as they describe it, specifically flavored juice that is used by uh, people who use uh, vape devices or e-cig devices like myself. Some call them e-cigarettes, but they're not actually cigarettes at all. And while they have nicotine in them, it ain't the nicotine that kills smokers. It is all the other carcinogens that are in cigarettes that get released when uh, tobacco is burned. That does not happen in e-cigs or, or vaping devices. Now, Prop 31 uh, would ban the sale of flavored e-juice, like the kind that I use. My favorite is espresso flavored, but other people use all sorts of, of flavors. And this proposition is being sold as a, a ban uh, to prevent kids from buying flavored e-juice, which you might see there have been some commercials. Oh, you know, don't let kids. Big Tobacco is trying to reach your kids with bubblegum bubble flavored uh, vaping uh, juice and devices. It, here's the thing. They are scamming you. It is already illegal to sell e-juice to minors. This is not about, you know, stopping kids from getting hooked on these devices. The people who would really be hurt by this are those of us who are trying to stay away from cigarettes, which are deadly. You know, and happily, I haven't had one in like a decade now, thanks to being able to uh, use a far safer nicotine delivery system like vaping devices. Now, Big Pharma doesn't like vaping devices either. Why? Well, because they have a billion-dollar-plus industry in the nicotine industry. Yes, Big Pharma loves selling nicotine. They make billions of dollars on it through nicotine gum, nicotine patches. Yes, they have inhalers, nicotine inhalers that they sell. Big Pharma does. So on this Prop 31, a yes vote... um, would allow uh, the, the, these uh, flavored juices to be banned. A no vote would essentially repeal this legislation that bans uh, flavored e-juice. Uh, a no vote will save tens of thousands of lives here in California alone. I've been covering this issue for years, and the misinformation about e-cigs out there is unconscionable, is immoral. 
It is appalling. It defies what science, what science actually finds about vaping, uh, recommending the device for people who are trying to quit smoking. And it finds that many adult vapors, in fact, turn to flavored juice in order to quit smoking. Just like me. And in fact, uh, in places where they allow flavored juice, um, and I don't have the time to run through the science because I'm running late here, but uh, there are places uh, where they have not banned flavored juice where the rate of people quitting smoking is much higher than uh, in places where they are trying to ban flavored juice. Yes, because it does make it clear in these studies, especially in the United Kingdom, Mm -hmm. it makes it clear that areas that allow adults to choose whatever vaping flavors work best for them, that they not only have seen a reduction in adult cigarette smoking, but they have maintained that cessation. In other words, it lasts. Mm -hmm. They don't go back to Mm -hmm. cigarettes at a very high rate. and, uh, and it is another study here in the United States. CDC statistics say that states that do have vaping flavor bans have not seen as big a reduction in smoking rates because mm-hmm. the vaping, the flavor ban prevents adult smokers yep. from being able to quit cigarettes completely. It tastes way better. I would have never started smoking in the first place, uh, you know, if there were something like this, a flavored ban, uh, a, a flavored juice. It just tastes better. It is much easier to not smoke. Smoke cigarettes uh, if you have access to this juice, which they want to wipe out in California, which is absolutely insane. Yes, there is a plethora of evidence from foreign government public health agencies that find vaping to be significantly less harmful than combustible cigarettes. That's the UK's National Health Service, which in eight reviews found that vaping provides a 95 percent harm reduction over smoking cigarettes. So that's why it doesn't make sense to uh, ban flavored yep. flavors because they're not supposed to be selling them to youth anyway. No on Prop 31 if you're in <laughs> California, and I promise it is coming to a state near you. I didn't even have time to get into the story about Lindsey Graham. We'll have to do that another time, but I just want to let you know at the end of the story, uh, the moral is, hey, go over to bradblog.com, read Ernie Canning's new piece headlined, To Save American Democracy. A longtime Bernie Sanders supporter on why we must vote blue in 2022. You can better find that out on your own at bradblog.com. I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to Yout Orozco, my uh, uh, board operator today, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me an email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. We'll see you there until we see you here tomorrow. Hopefully, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two.
On this day in labor history, the year was 1936. That was the day Londoners referred to as the Battle of Cable Street. By some accounts, as many as 250,000 trade unionists, radicals, and anti-fascist fighters joined together to protest Sir Oswald Mosley's British Union of Fascists. The fascists planned to march in black shirt uniform through London's then heavily Irish and Jewish working class East End neighborhood. Mosley's BUF scapegoated Jews for the economic crisis brought on by the Great Depression. He had drawn thousands to rallies in previous years and now looked to impose fascist dominance over the most vulnerable of Londoners. Bill Fishman, a Jewish activist and son of an immigrant tailor who was there on that day, recollected, quote, I was moved to see the bearded Jews and Irish Catholic dockers standing up to stop Mosley. I shall never forget that as long as I live. How working class people could get together to oppose the evil of fascism. The Metropolitan Police stationed as many as 10,000 policemen to keep counter-protesters from directly confronting the BUF. But the anti-fascist physically blocked every possible path into the East End. They constructed barricades along Cable Street made from paving stones and household furniture. Women emptied garbage bags and chamber pots from windows onto the fascists. Marbles were thrown in the direction of the fascists and their protectors. Seamen pulled out their lorries and turned them on their sides. Tram drivers parked and abandoned their streetcars in the middle of the street to prevent the fascists from continuing their march. Protesters chanted the slogan of the Spanish Civil War, No Passeran, or They Shall Not Pass. And that day, the fascists did not pass. They were stopped by the power of working people.